The Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, episode number 30. Today's episode is brought to you by my nutrition company, BSL Nutrition, and our all-in-one training drink called Complete Essentials, the only workout formula that helps busy men and women optimally fuel their workouts for better energy and faster fat loss so that you can achieve your best with less. Stay tuned after the show where I'll share a nice little discount for all of our listeners on their first product purchase. Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to episode number 30 of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. I am your host, Ben Brown, co-founder and CEO of BSLNutrition.com. And as always, our goal with this show is to help you make smart nutrition simple. Uh, It is our mission to take and bring on experts in the field of health, fitness, supplementation, and lifestyle and break down the complex scientific uh, topics out there that we're confused about into tangible pieces of bite-sized information that you can take with you and implement today. With that said, we bring on to the show Luke Tullock. Luke, Luke is a personal trainer based in Sydney, Australia. He has a strong background in neuroscience, and so he is the perfect guest to kind of help us combine both the art uh, and the science of coaching. Um, He focuses mostly on a mix of general population as well as is kind of a trainer to the trainer. So he acts as a coach to both general population and other coaches that are learning learning to interpret research, learning to understand the science behind why they do what they do. And so again, it's, it's kind of a perfect complement to helping us better understand uh, metabolism, energy constraints, supplementation. We talk about protein goals. Uh, we talk about uh, kind of uh, protein energy uh, pathways and meal frequency for weight loss and all kinds of other goodies. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation that we have. Assuming you do and assuming that you guys are appreciating and enjoying and finding value in the health and fitness and supplement and lifestyle experts that we are having on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show, then the best compliment that we can get from you is for you to subscribe to the show, for you to leave us a positive review in iTunes, and for you to share these episodes with your friends and people that you think can value from this information. Uh, With that said, uh, we're very appreciative. I'm very appreciative to have you as a listener I know that uh, we all have so many different things going on, um, and for you to take time out of your day to spend with me and our guest really means a lot to me. I put a lot of time and energy into preparing for these podcasts to, to, you know, to really try and provide the best quality information that I think is going to resonate with you uh, in a way that you can immediately act upon. And so I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear about what it is that you're struggling with. I'd love to hear the ahas that you get from our various guests and um, what you think we can be doing better. With that said, uh, I hope you enjoy the show and I'll see you on the other side. What's up, my brother? How you doing? Very good, man. I'm very excited to be here. It's Thursday morning in Sydney and uh, ready to go. How are you doing, man? I'm great. Yeah. So you're on the other side of the world and yeah. uh, we are a day apart. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of weird when you fly to the States, you lose a day. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that I was over in, I was, um, 
after college, I did a two week tour of New Zealand and we are my whole rugby team. Cause I played rugby in college. And so oh, we cool. went, yeah. So we went and toured and you're an ex rugby player, right? Yeah, man. I love it. Yeah. So we went and toured, um, the North Island of New Zealand. We started in Auckland and worked our way down and we played matches in all these little towns throughout the North Island, basically just kind of drinking our way from town to town um, and just getting absolutely annihilated by these just, uh, yeah. small, you know, these small town rugby teams. I mean, these guys have been playing their <laughs> whole lives and being American rugby players, most of us have like a football, American football background. And so we'd only been playing for a few years. Um, some guys four or five years, some guys high school, but uh, yeah, we got, we got destroyed. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're on another level over there. <laughs> but, but yeah, so it's like you, you go across and you have, you gain a day and then you come back and you lose a whole, a whole, a whole nother day. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, man. Uh, so with that said, so, so you're in Australia and, um, tell me a little bit about your business. Yeah, well, we, uh, we have a big chain, um, gym chain over here called fitness first that is also really big in the UK. Um, and I think they have a few in Spain and that sort of thing as well. Um, but that was really like the dominant, uh, model over here until, uh, I would say maybe five, 10 years ago, you started seeing more. 24 hour fitnesses and stuff, but long story short, I've been working with a guy called Kato who now owns uh, the gym that I'm working at at the moment, which is just an independent gym called Lift Performance Center in Sydney. And so I've been working out of here since we opened, uh, run a business with my wife. And basically we see a lot of uh, face-to-face clients here. It's a little bit more uh, athletically minded, um, just average people who want to be athletic. Mm-hmm which is cool. You know, it's a lot of fun. So we get to train a lot of different people. Um, but more and more having, you know, been doing some research, uh, basically the entire time I've, I've been a trainer, which is going on 10 years now. Um, I'm starting to coach other coaches as well. So it's kind of, my business is a bit of a mix of just seeing uh, general population people who want to be better and then uh, coaching other coaches too. Yeah. Cause you know, from learning more about you, you have a, a strong training background um, in, personal training, strength and conditioning, but also in neuroscience. So you've, you've, you know, deeply rooted in kind of science background. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of how that developed or in what that, what exactly is a degree in neuroscience? Yeah. Well, I, um, when I started out, uh, I was 18 and I was doing a business degree and, uh, I ended up realizing that that wasn't for me. <laughs> so, um, I, I went back and I did some personal training and then I thought, okay, I want to, I want to learn more about this stuff. So I started a double degree in psychology, uh, and in biochem and I ended up moving to another university. I actually went on exchange to the university of Mississippi, Ole Miss for, right on. Uh, for a little while, which was fun. Um, but ended up doing this degree in neuroscience. Uh, it was quite flexible, which meant I could kind of choose the stuff that I thought was really relevant to training people and, and health and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, rather than like jamming heaps of anatomy and biochem down mm-hmm. my throat, I could kind of focus more on the physiology and that type of thing, which was a lot of fun. So uh, I ended up doing that and um, it, it just gave me such a good background in terms of uh, having a good sort of uh, bullshit detector, you know, so yeah. being able to say like, okay, does this stuff make sense based on uh, just the basics of, of uh, chemistry, the basics of biology? And uh, it, it was 
luckily, early on, I had the good sense to set aside some time every day to do a little bit of my own research. So I would say, right, one hour a day, I'm going to read some books or I'm going to try and look at some papers. I'm going to try and look at research reviews to get an idea of how to actually pull apart a paper. And, uh, you know, so probably for the past eight or nine years, I would say I've had an hour to two hours a day where I just try and do that every single day. And slowly but surely, you know, that knowledge accumulates and you start to get a better picture of the world. And um, it, it just means that now it, it's much easier when you when you have a concept come out or a study come out, you can kind of fit it into the bigger picture of what's going on. Well, that seems like something that would be extremely valuable to have, especially with so much pseudoscience in the industry and so many kind of fads coming to fruition and, and not just coming up now, but things that have existed over time that have resurfaced like keto, yeah. like paleo, low carb, you know, yeah. um, intermittent fasting, all of these different things. And so having that, you know, scientific background to be able to justify whether or not it's the right tool at the right time for the specific person yeah. and their goals, I imagine it'd be extremely beneficial. Yeah. And that's the thing you hit on it perfectly. It's all it's context. And like, as a, as a coach, I've gotten more and more annoying to my clients because mm -hmm. I say it depends a lot. And I say, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And uh, I think as a coach, it's easy to get into this, um, this mindset where a client pays you and they want, an answer they want you to say this is what you need to do this is what's going to get you the result and sometimes you can say that but a lot of the time you kind of have to say it depends and sometimes we do this and sometimes we don't and this sort of thing so it can be a bit uh, frustrating for them but at the end of the day um, I think the more you learn the more you realize there's a lot of ways to skin the cat and mm -hmm. you need to be able to take all that science and say right I know all of this science and it was done in all these populations and I have all this data but how do I translate that to the person standing in front of me and how do I utilize the art of coaching to take that research and, and put it into practice? Yeah. So, so with the, the current population that you're working with, what are some of the common struggles that you're seeing, you know, day to day with, with respect to kind of their nutrition and supplementation and um, those types of things? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is that they tend to find something that they Think feels right to them it feels logical to them whether that's like oh it's this particular program or it's like like you said uh, keto is, is the answer to my problems or paleo or whatever it is and so what I try and teach is there are fundamental principles that we need to learn so one of those would be energy balance right so your energy balance has to be in the right place otherwise you're not going to lose fat or you're not going to gain muscle and within that you can fit a lot of different paradigms you can fit keto or paleo or uh if it fits your macros or any of that will fit but as long as you're taking care of those basic fundamentals of okay let's get enough protein in let's get the right amount of energy in um uh so i think once you can teach someone that there are principles that we need to adhere to it then opens up this whole world of flexibility for them mm -hmm. and it means that okay if i have a guy whose lifestyle dictates that maybe intermittent fasting is going to work best for him, then hell yeah, we can use that. Uh, so that for me is the biggest thing is that people have this locked in idea that like, this is the stuff that works, but they don't really know why it just kind of makes sense to them, I suppose, on an emotional level. Yes. And then as a coach, I can say, well, this is sort of what's going on uh, in the body that makes that work. But that also applies to a bunch of other things you can try. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's what we keep coming back to on the show is regardless of who the expert and health professional is that, that we're just talking with, we all have our own respective ways of speaking to our population about what it takes to get healthy, lose weight, improve energy, gain muscle mass. And a lot of it does come down to energy balance, balancing metabolism, all of those types of things. But we kind of all talk about it in different ways. But it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot of, of using intuition, of teaching clients. And, and for those of you listening, it's about understanding your body and what your body's needs are at the given time, depending on your goals. And so I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that you brought that up. So with respect to energy balance... And with respect to the fact that I just talked about metabolism, you know, we were, we were talking before, before I started, before I hit record about um, this constrained energy expenditure model um, that you were discussing. Would you mind jumping into that and then kind of relating, you know, relating it to what we were just talking about? Yeah, man, this is something that to me is very exciting. And I think we're going to see a lot of uh, breakthrough studies coming out in the next sort of five to 10 years on this. Uh, so the concept started because there were some evolutionary biologists that uh, wanted to know what the difference was in energy expenditure between our hunter-gatherer ancestors and what they might have expended in a day in terms of energy and what the average person sitting in an office today expends. And so what they did is they found a tribe in Tanzania that uh, basically still lives their traditional lifestyle. So they are hunter-gatherers. They went over there and they used some really rigorous scientific methods. So using doubly labeled water to measure their energy expenditure. So that's, that's the most robust way you can measure energy expenditure. And they measured it and the results came back and they found that actually these guys, these tribes people were expending the same amount of energy every day as your average person in the U.S. was, which is like they thought the data was wrong. They thought like maybe we measured this wrong or like, how can we explain this? So, so just was, so so sorry to interrupt, but just 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 for clarification. So, we have sort of a native native tribal person that's seemingly extremely physically active, and a, yeah. a sedentary U.S. population, and they're saying that the energy um, expenditure was the same. Yeah. So I think from memory, it was like a little over two thousand calories a day as okay. a basal metabolic rate, right? So. They thought there must be a few explanations for this. They thought maybe they're not moving around as much as we, we thought they were in this, this tribe. So they put accelerometers on them and measured it. And they were uh, walking on average, I think, about 10 miles a day. Mm. And they were five to 10 times more active than the average office worker. So then they thought, okay, maybe they're sleeping a lot more and that's making up for the difference. Um, and sure enough, they're sleeping about the same as most people do here. It's about seven to eight hours. And they were trying to work out what the hell is going on here. Um, but every time they came back to it, it seemed like the data was actually robust. It was true. So then that leaves a possible explanation that seems to be the only thing left is that the body is somehow compensating for the amount of energy you expend by cutting back on your energy expenditure at different times throughout the day. Now we know that humans are capable. Some people have gotten this a bit wrong and they've said, Oh, there must be a limit on how much energy we can actually produce and spend every day. Uh, that may be true, but there was some work done pretty recently where they tracked how much energy was expended during marathon runners and uh, during a marathon. 
and also during an adventure race, which was 26 hours long. And, you know, we're capable of burning, you know, 20,000 calories a day in some cases, which is, you know, phenomenal. So mm-hmm. you have the capacity to do that. But the idea is that uh, there is probably some sort of evolutionary mechanism uh, based around our survival in our past that limited how much calories we spend every day. So the idea is that even though uh, it's, it's like anything else, you know, your, your blood pH is kept within a certain range, your body temperature is kept within a certain range, your blood glucose is kept within a certain range. And now the hypothesis is that your energy expenditure, your body tries to keep within a certain range. Okay, cool. So, so within that is basically suggesting that it's almost so, so regardless of how much we exercise the, the, the perception that we need to exercise a certain amount of time in order to burn more calories may actually not be the right way to be thinking about how to lose weight because our body may uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, downregulate other physiological processes to offset the amount of, say, physical activity that we're having. That's exactly right. So we are not sure yet what that downregulation looks like in terms of what is being downregulated. In terms of, okay. you said, physiological processes, which is 100% spot on. We don't know what that is yet. So that can't necessarily be explained by uh, NEAT or non-exercise activity. Right. Um, so the, one of the ideas is that, and, and we know this is true from a lot of the leptin research that's been done, is that uh, usually people that exercise more tend to have a lower rate of energy expenditure throughout the rest of the day. So they tend to sit on their butts a bit more. They tend to fidget less. Um, all of those sort of activities that normally expends little bits of energy here and there tends to go down. But that's not enough to explain the difference in energy expenditure that we're seeing here. These guys, in theory, these tribes people should be spending like five, 600 more calories a day at least than the average office worker in the US, but that's not happening. And non-exercise activity is not enough to explain how big that difference is. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the idea is that there has to be something else. There has to be something else. It may be, um, you know, enzyme activity in certain tissues. It may be uh, something to do with digestion. You know, there could be a bunch of other things. And that's what the research is going to be looking at over the next, uh, probably the next five to 10 years. Um, You know, and so I I need to also probably put in here that uh, we're not, we're not thinking on this necessarily on a day to day thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for example, you could you could be like that. Who's that crazy dude who ran like a marathon every day for like fifty days straight or something? Yeah, I don't. I, <laughs> like, that guy's energy expenditure. I mean, that guy's energy expenditure is going to be through the roof for that right. that month or two that he's running, right? But the idea is that on a long enough timeline, it's going to average back down to mm-hmm. the same calories that you and I burn every day. You know, so if yeah. we're looking at this from a standpoint of six months or a year, where you know, sure, in the short term, if you do a 12-week transformation, you might drop a lot of weight from training the whole time. But, you know, as we know from the research, when you do a six-month follow-up or a 12-month follow-up, most people regain back all that weight that they lost. Um, right. So we're looking at this averaged out over a longer period of time. Uh, and so you're exactly right that trying to necessarily out-exercise your energy intake may not be the right approach here. It may be mm-hmm. that we need to focus more on your diet and your food intake. 
rather than focusing too much on the exercise side. And I'll put in a caveat here. It obviously is really important to exercise. There are benefits uh, in exercising that you just can't replace with anything else, you know. So whether that's aerobic activity, which I'm a big fan of, and obviously weight training, I'm a big fan of being a bodybuilder. Um, that stuff has some massive benefits to you and to your health. So you, you can't just say, oh, well, it's pointless exercising because I'm just going to, you know, limit my calorie expenditure anyway. Um, you still need to have that stuff in there. But if you're looking for a long-term change, I think this research is telling us that it's important to look at the habits uh, surrounding your diet. Yeah, that's crazy. That's super fascinating. And I think that ties right into the idea of metabolic you know, compensation, metabolic resistance, um, and, and kind of how we see sometimes with people that under eat and over exercise and, and sort of over the long term, what starts to happen with digestive system, like you said, maybe it's digestive enzyme, um, production, um, and maybe it's thyroid output, maybe it's, yep. you know, it's the leptin and ghrelin function um, and, and kind of insulin resistance and all, all those types of things. And so kind of a, a unique and possibly new way to address why the body does what it does when we put it under an undue amount of stress for an extended period of time that it can't adapt to. Yeah, I agree. And that comes back to something called triage theory, which uh, the famous researcher Bruce Ames came up with. Um, and basically his concept was more with uh, vitamins and minerals that, you know, those essential processes that keep us alive and keep us functioning are going to be prioritized by the, by the body. And the stuff that's maybe not so important um, in the short term is kind of just left by the wayside because your body's just trying to survive. And right. I imagine with your energy partitioning, it's probably the same, right? So like if you need to do physical work, your body's going to prioritize the energy there because it just has to move to, to do certain tasks. But there may be other things that are kind of left on the wayside that over years you really start to see a detriment to. So, you know, things you mentioned, thyroid, gut health, all that type of stuff can start to uh, be affected by that. And I think that that is also leading into one of the most important issues that a lot of people don't think about, which is stress management and the role of the nervous system and how you can uh, maybe put yourself into this state where you're just draining your body's resources over and over and over again. And you, you know, despite the fact that you might be exercising more and eating less, you're getting less healthy. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit is, you know, we, we've talked about, um, kind of stress management on the show before. I think people have a, a general understanding of cortisol as a stress hormone and kind of the importance mm -hmm. of, uh, of getting enough sleep, of exercising, you know, of getting enough sunlight um, throughout the day, of not kind of overstressing. But kind of what's your perspective on the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic? What do you see with your clients and how do you help your clients <clears throat> kind of understand and um, optimize those, those, you know, body mechanisms, those functions. Yeah, this is a, this is a really big deal. And, um, <laughs> you know, just to give a, a little explanation, when we're talking about the sympathetic nervous system, we're broadly talking about the sort of uh, fight or flight um, stressed type of uh, response. The parasympathetic is the opposite. That's the so-called rest and digest. 
and they tend to be in opposition to each other, right? So sometimes your sympathetic is going to be uh, turned up a little bit and sometimes your parasympathetic is going to be turned up a little bit and controlling things. And ideally, we want a good balance between that. We want to be able to switch between those fluidly and easily because sometimes you need to mobilize energy and you need to get things done and you need that stress response. And sometimes you need to rest and digest and you need to make sure that recovery is happening and that all those systems can be restored. And unfortunately, most people tend to be pushed into uh, sympathetic overdrive. So they're always sympathetic. They're always stressed. And it's important to note, I'm sure many of your listeners will know that uh, whether it's an emotional stress or a physical stress, you still affect the nervous system in a similar way. So if you have a mortgage hanging over your head, if your daughter just got knocked up, if you know, whatever, that stuff is all very stressful from a sympathetic nervous system point of view. And um, we tend to find that most people hang in that, in that area way too much, which limits their recovery. And it comes back to what we were talking about with that triage theory. It means that your body's expending resources to keep you there when it basically shouldn't be. And that's going to be coming at the cost of your health and performance later on. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do, what I find is that most people don't have that balance there. And we need to use techniques to make sure that they are able to uh, keep the balance between the two sides of those ner- of the nervous system. Um, and in my opinion, what it really comes down to is covering off on, you know, making sure that everything is accounted for in terms of recovery. And I think recovery is the big underrated element uh, in training and nutrition and health in general. So we know sleep's important. We know nutrition's important, but I think, we are trainers and you have someone pay you to come in and they want to work hard and they want to, uh, you know, they want to get stuck in. Uh, it's hard to say, look, we need to set the base first. Sometimes what you need to do to maximize your results is a, a parasympathetic nervous system session, which to me looks like um, low intensity, long duration cardio, for example. Um, so where you keep your heart rate like around 120, it looks like, more stretching, more mobility, more of those, uh, I suppose, relaxing type of uh, training modalities because it sets you up so much better in the long run to be able to do more work when you need to. It sets you up to recover from that harder work. And to be perfectly honest, you just get way better results when you do that. How do you determine if it, what sort of training someone needs, whether, it's whether they need to come into the gym and get their ass kicked or whether they need to come into the gym and you guys need to do stretching and deep breathing and low-intensity cardio? Yeah, there's a lot of things you can use. So one of the uh, rising modalities used now is your heart rate variability, which is uh, becoming really popular. Um, and it, it's a pretty good measure. So the way it works is that your heart rate actually should not be really steady like a metronome. What it should happen is when you breathe in, your heart rate needs to increase a little bit and your sympathetic nervous system turns up a little bit. When you breathe out, your parasympathetic nervous system turns up a little bit and your heart rate slows down. So what you should find is that over you know, a one-minute period, your heart rate is slightly speeding up and slightly slowing down constantly. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we mean when we say heart rate variability. And what it shows is that there's balance between the two sides of the nervous system. Sometimes the sympathetic is taking over uh, and turning up a little bit, and sometimes the parasympathetic is taking over and turning up a little bit. And what you see with most people is that their heart rate is exactly like a metronome. Whether it's, uh, you know, even if it, your resting heart rate is low or whether it's high is, is somewhat irrelevant to this conversation. 
Um, resting heart rate should be lower. That's still healthier. But if it's like a metronome and it's constantly ticking away at exactly the same rhythm, what it means is that you're most likely stuck in the sympathetic side. And because your sympathetic nervous system is turned up so much, it's cranked to 11, your parasympathetic nervous system never has a chance to take over and slow down that heart rate. And so what you see is that the variability in your heart rate is very low when what we actually want is quite a high variability in the heart rate. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing you can actually measure. You can measure that upon waking. Um, and it, I tend to find that that correlates quite well with a few other measures. So you might find that when someone comes in, um, you can physically feel how stiff and tense they are. If you touch someone's resting, you, know, you touch them and you feel their resting muscle tone, it's actually quite revealing. Um, so my, I'm a bodybuilder and I tend to find my, my sort of resting muscle tone is quite high and you'll tend to find a lot of strength athletes and, and people of that nature tend to have a, quite a sort of high tonality to their muscles. In other words, you touch them and they just feel like rock. Yeah. My wife does a lot of uh, gymnastics and mobility training and all of her friends uh, and the people she stretches with, you touch them and they're squishy. They're like a water balloon. Right. It's quite interesting, but because they do so much of that work on breathing and relaxation, you tend to find that their resting level is just very low in tone. It's very parasympathetic. So if you get someone in and they're super tight, they tend to be a little bit wound up. Um, they're kind of uh, tired but wired at the same time, um, and their resting heart rate is a little bit elevated. You can probably surmise that in general they are a little bit too... Uh, sympathetic dominant for our liking and it may be that then when we go into our training i'm not going to completely ignore the sympathetic dominant training i'm not going to ignore the weight training and the hard sessions but i'm going to make sure that i balance it as much as i can with those other sessions Mm -hmm. the lower intensity cardio it's it's kind of at a rate where you can keep going and breathe through your nose but it gets your heart rate up over 100 Um, or stretching and funnily enough when you do that because the recovery goes up so much and the work capacity goes up so much in later phases, you can start to pull back on that a little bit and you can wind up the, the sort of more uh, show-and-go type workouts and they actually do better in those. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good feedback and right on line with, you know, previous guests that I've had on, um, I, as I mentioned, Luke Lehman, Dr. Mm-hmm. J. Tita, just talking about heart rate variability and the importance of, of us really managing our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems because most of us are wound too tight nowadays. And it's to the degree that, you know, with respect to, with respect to health and weight loss and improving energy and sleep is we're too sympathetic nervous system dominant. And uh, we're basically just trying to, to do too much all the time. And sometimes it's, it's, uh, less is more approach, right? So that we can balance those out so that our metabolism can uh, compensate effectively so that we can then allow our body to release body fat or produce the hormones that we need or allow the digestion, um, reduce the cortisol, all of those types of things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's one of those things where uh, often what we want to do, and I think it's happening more and more in the Instagram age where hmm. you want to come out of a session feeling like you've just been beaten to the ground because that's a, that's a mark of a good training session. But um, what you have to think about is that there is a goal with your training and the goal is not to feel tired at the end. The goal is to be better. 
And so if you take that mentality of getting better, then it becomes a lot easier for you to, to do those, uh, I suppose, lower intensity sessions where you kind of maybe feel like you just want to hit it all out and, and end up in a puddle of sweat and feeling like you really blasted yourself. But yeah. it's not making you better in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And just being okay. Yeah, just being okay with having, you know, the the green, yellow, and red workouts and saying there's gonna be workouts where we can just crush a lot of yellow workouts in terms of like you said, breathing through your nose and kind of that moderate intensity, maybe longer rest period, uh, maybe not as intense from a total weight standpoint and then workouts where it's just like maybe you haven't slept in a couple of days you've been stressed with work and maybe it's just like hey man go home and sleep or or something yeah, like that totally. go chill out um so what how do you work with your clients i'm assuming since you said you know you you work with a lot of general population i'm assuming you kind of really focus on some fundamental kind of nutrition guidelines fundamental supplement guidelines What's kind of your philosophy around nutrition? How do you tend to structure your nutrition programs for your uh, physique and, and weight loss clients? Yeah, it's very individual because uh, you'll tend to find people have, they're at different levels. There are people who are like, you know, uh, unsure what foods are rich in protein and what are rich in carbohydrates. Like you get that basic level. But then you also have those people who are right on the other end of the spectrum and they've been weighing everything for like, the last two years and they know exactly what, you know, mm -hmm. 125 grams of rice looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so to me, there's, like I said before, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat and I just work on a, on a hierarchy sort of system. So at the base level, I just need people to be aware of what their rough energy balance is, what their portion sizes look like. Uh, and from there, we can start to look at what their macronutrient ratios are. And then when they got that nailed down, I can look at their food quality. When they got that nailed down, I can look at meal timing. And then, you know, once we've gone through all of that, then supplements come into play. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, my approach is to make sure that they're starting at a place of plenty. So I never start them where they're like on a thousand calories a day and they're just like burning candle at both ends. I always start higher up and I work on consistency. The biggest issue I find with both training and nutrition is that people don't stick to anything for long enough and they don't record anything for long enough to actually make a measurable change. Having a bit more of a background in science, I think the more data you can have, the better. And the more consistent we are, the more we can say like, okay, you've been eating at this level with this amount of food, these types of foods for a certain amount of time now. And we've observed these changes in your weight and your performance and how you feel. Let's make a change now. And then we can actually see what the difference is. But if you have someone who's all over the place and you're saying, yeah, do this, do that. It's like, how do you even know if that's working? There's too much mm -hmm. noise in that data for you to even start to, to see where they're going. So, you know, I think really for me, number one is consistency. And whether that is someone at the level of weighing every gram of, of whatever they eat or whether that's just someone going, I'm going to write down what I eat and I'm not going to weigh it and I'm not going to guess the portion sizes. I'm just going to write down like I had fish and rice this noon. Uh, sometimes just that mindfulness is enough for them to start to be more consistent with what they're eating and to understand, um, you know, what, what's going into their mouth every day. Yeah, that's good. It personally, it took me a really long time as a coach to start to be diligent enough about having 
about kind of being structured and 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 actually measuring uh, things that clients were doing um, to the degree that we could make incremental changes and saying like, okay, well, you've been consuming you know roughly two thousand calories. Um, and you've been exercising X amount, and therefore we're just going to start, you know, we're just going to tweak your caloric intake, your exercise is going to stay the same, so that we're not changing all of these variables, because from a scientific perspective, that's the only way that you can really track progress. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's take advantage of your scientific mind, and, and let's dig into kind of some of these nutritional philosophies just a little bit deeper than... Um, you know, surface level. So let's talk about kind of, I don't know, let's talk about nutrient timing. You, you know, you brought up nutrient timing. Let's talk about mm-hmm. what, what is the science say if, if you're aware about how many meals per day people should be eating? Because we've all heard that, you know, we need to be eating six or seven small meals per day every couple hours, right? We need to be doing that to stoke the metabolism. And I think there's still a lot of um, stigma associated with that mindset. Um, what does science say we should be doing? Yeah, well, this is this is quite interesting. Um, it actually says that the total number of calories at the end of the day, and even in my book, at the end of the week, is actually probably the most important thing. Um, so I work on a timeline of a week with all of my clients, but that aside you're not going to see too much difference in terms of fat loss and probably even muscle gain between like three and six meals a day. It's probably going to be a similar result provided the calories and the macronutrient ratios are the same All good. Mm -hmm. It comes, uh, especially with fat loss. I think it's, you know, for your average person who doesn't care that much about their muscle mass, I, I don't think the meal frequency matters too much. I think what matters most is what they're comfortable eating. If they've always eaten three meals a day, Don't tell them to eat five meals a day. They're just not going to be able to do it. When it comes to muscle building, it's a little bit different because we have to think about opportunities to stimulate all of the machinery that builds your muscles. So this is where we talk about mTOR. Uh, And if you haven't heard of mTOR, this is basically like the regulatory enzyme that controls whether we build muscle or whether we don't build muscle. When we switch on mTOR, that's switching on protein synthesis in the muscle, and that's when we grow and repair our muscles. So there are a few things that affect mTOR, and one of them is the nutrient status of your body at the time. Um, Now, that's affected mostly by protein and the amino acids that make up that protein that you eat. So if you think about it, every time you're ingesting amino acids and they're secreting across the, the intestines into your bloodstream, that's hitting mTOR and it's going to potentially switch it on. Mm -hmm. The research seems to show that once you've stimulated mTOR and you've switched it on, it'll run for a certain amount of time and then it will ramp down again and it will come back down to baseline, which means that probably three to four times a day, you want to be ingesting enough protein to switch on mTOR, fully stimulate it and let your protein synthesis ramp up. Um, So if you're looking for muscle building, I tend to say that something like a, an intermittent fasting regime is probably not 100% optimal um, where you're skipping meals or you're in the way I tend to word it is you're missing opportunities to turn on protein synthesis. Yeah. Um, so I tend to advocate eating evenly spaced out meals, but it doesn't have to be more than about four per day. If you go up, it's quite interesting actually, if you go up to like eight meals a day, like some bodybuilders uh, seem to do, 
that's probably detrimental as well because what happens is when mTOR sees this influx of nutrients, it'll ramp up and it'll work for a while. And then after some time, it'll come back down to baseline and it gets resensitized to those nutrients again. It gets resensitized to those amino acids in your bloodstream. So if you're trying to stimulate it before it's resensitized, it actually doesn't switch on to the same extent. It's like when you're sort of still a little bit full from your last meal and you don't really feel like eating and then you try and eat and it just doesn't taste as good. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you haven't eaten a meal in like 10 hours and then you suddenly get, you know, like a plate of chicken and broccoli in front of you, that suddenly seems really appetizing because you just haven't seen it, any food for that long. It's kind of the same with mTOR. So if you're stimulating it too much, it never gets a chance to re- resensitize to those nutrients. Yeah, I mean, that's... Maximize it. So that's like, you know, you see the bodybuilders walking around with their gallon of, of water with BCAs in it, sipping yeah. on it all day long, right? They've got their neon green or pink or whatever uh, BCA drink that they're just drinking all the time. And it's a perfect example of they may be actually desensitizing their body's ability to stimulate muscle growth. Yeah. And I got, I got a couple of points to make on that. The first thing is that BCAAs uh, or the branch chain amino acids are leucine, isoleucine and valine. So let's just think about leucine. Leucine is the main one that switches on mTOR. Okay. So cool. You're taking BCAAs, you're switching on mTOR. But the problem is that's like the foreman saying, all right, boys, let's get to work on the building site, but hang on, there's no workers there's no bricks, there's no mortar. We need all the other amino acids there as well. So when you're consuming BCAAs, that's not a complete protein source. You're switching on mTOR, but then it's got nothing to build anything with. So that's the first point. Secondly, when you're taking large amounts of BCAAs, uh, some of you may have heard this before, but there's something called the blood-brain barrier. And what that is, is it's, it's just, it's not a physical barrier, it's like a chemical barrier. So it only lets certain molecules across into the brain because there's certain things you don't want in your brain and there's certain things you need to keep in your brain. There's an uh, amino acid called tryptophan that shares the same transporter across the blood-brain barrier that leucine does. And we need tryptophan to make serotonin. Now, if you're having too many BCAAs, potentially what you're doing is you're competing for uptake across the blood-brain barrier. You may not be getting enough tryptophan to replenish your tryptophan pool in the brain, meaning your synthesis of serotonin in the brain goes down. Um, And for people who may be predisposed to things like uh, depression or serotonin-related issues like like that, you may actually be doing yourself harm in the long term. So for that reason, I'm, you know, like you said, I'm really not a fan of sipping on BCAAs throughout the Mm -hmm. day. I think they maybe have a place in diets that aren't so rich in leucine, so that might be like a, a vegan-based uh, a diet if you're a bodybuilder. Um, but even then, I think it's a, you know, that's a pretty niche use of BCAAs. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because that is, a, is actually a really big point. And I think that BCAAs are far more hyped up than what they're really, you know, than their benefit. Um, mm-hmm. But so what you're saying is that... Um, people need to be getting all of the essential amino acids first and foremost. And I'm assuming you'd agree that basically you need to be consuming enough protein on a daily basis, which if you're consuming enough protein from our food on a daily basis, right, we're going to be getting enough of the essential amino acids, specifically the leucine, which is the main driver of, of mTOR. Um, and then next to that is, 
people can be consuming, whether it's BCAs or uh, essential amino acids in and around their workouts to maybe like maybe offset their net protein intake. Like maybe if they're not getting enough or maybe add a little extra stimulus. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with that, man. So, so within that, and then, and then also to clarify is leucine is, is one of the essential amino acids that we find in BCAs and the essential amino acids, but that we don't find in high amounts in vegetarian and vegan diets because they're not consuming animal proteins. And so just so people are just, we're clear on that is if you are a vegetarian or vegan, you need to go out of your way to be consuming enough, um, basically different, uh, protein sources, so different vegan protein sources to create enough of the essential amino acids, specifically the leucine, if, especially if your goal is like putting on muscle mass, um, to stimulate the mTOR that you were talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, um, to be clear, I think you can, uh, have a, a great success as a bodybuilder or, you know, trying to build lean mass as a vegan or as a vegetarian. You just have to be a little bit more mindful and a little bit more conscientious of the different sources of protein that you're getting because it's just by default, if you're an omnivore and you're eating animal products, you're going to get a lot of every amino acid. But if you're a vegan, um, certain sources are rich in certain amino acids and certain sources are not so rich in those amino acids. So you need to just make sure you're getting a spectrum of different foods. Beautiful. Yeah, that's really helpful. So, um, what do we know about kind of how much protein someone should be taking in on a daily basis? You know, what are your, I think that, well, let's talk about kind of optimal numbers that maybe, you know, from the research or that you've seen anecdotally that kind of people should be shooting for. So the, the recommended uh, daily allowance in uh, in the UK, in Australia, in the US is still set That's... at 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, um, which is, is really small. Yeah, it's uh, low. So, it's yeah, low. it's really low. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, the research is pretty clear that if you more or less double that, you're, you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who are really serious, who are, you know, maybe on the larger side and train particularly hard, I think going up to uh, around 2 or 2.2 grams per kilo, which happens to be one gram per pound of body weight. Uh, I think that's a, that's a good place to shoot for. You can go over that. There's actually a study where they went to um, 4.4 grams per kilo or uh, 2 grams per pound of body weight, which is extraordinarily high. It's very difficult to eat that amount. They actually had dropouts in the study because it was so hard to have that amount. They were drinking shakes in between all their normal meals. Uh, and there's, there's no detrimental effects from that. Um, so you can go up as high as you like, really. But uh, I think a lot of people tend to, especially in the bodybuilding world, tend to overvalue how much protein they actually eat. Um, and I think most people will be just fine with, you know, around 1.6 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And, you know, th- there are some extenuating factors like how hard you train, how big you are in terms of your muscle mass. Uh, if you're in a calorie deficit, you might li- need a little bit more. Um, but interestingly, one of the things that also stimulates mTOR is not just protein, but resistance training. And mm. that's how calm a bodybuilder in contest prep, even though they are literally starving themselves, 
can still maintain most of their muscle mass because they train hard enough to still keep protein synthesis plugging away, even though they're in such a huge energy deficit. So that's a good point because for those people that are, for lack of a better term, dieting down or they're in caloric restriction and they're exercising is making sure that they're consuming enough protein to maintain muscle mass as they continually drop their calories or expend more calories. Because a lot of times we see, especially with the general population is, you know, especially this time of year, right? We're, we're coming into the new year. By the time this comes out, it's going to be after the new year. And a lot of people will kind of be in the midst of these dieting phases, right? They've been training hard. They've been eating significantly less, probably eating better, quote unquote. Uh, but what we see is that they're kind of going from, you know, maybe just a, a a bigger person with not a ton of muscle mass, a lot of body fat to potentially a smaller person, but the same amount of body fat and very minimal muscle mass um, or even um, sacrificing muscle mass because they're maybe not strength training and because maybe they're not uh, respecting their body's protein needs. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, And my basic recommendation is that no matter what your goal is, whether it's building muscle, athletic performance, losing fat, set your protein target and keep it there. Um, and what, you know, what we generally will move around is your fat and carbohydrate intake to create an energy deficit or an energy surplus, depending on your needs. Um, if you're especially uh, large, let's say you're very overweight and your protein intake ends up being calculated out to like 300 grams plus a day, just based on your body weight, that's probably too much. Yeah. Um, so there is obviously a, a special consideration for those people. Uh, but generally speaking, you want the, the protein intake to be uh, moderate to high and to stay there throughout, no matter what you're doing. And then no matter what your goal is, I think having a couple of resistance training sessions a week is really important for maintaining your lean mass. Um, you know, and, and even for... Uh, for everybody, really, I think having some aerobic activity in there and some resistance training is always going to produce the best results. Even if you're a bodybuilder whose primary focus is getting massive, I still think having some aerobic stuff in there is going to help you. And even if your primary goal is to just get fitter and to drop body fat through, let's say, running or something, um, having some resistance training is really important because it, uh, it improves your running for one thing. Yeah. from a muscular efficiency standpoint, but it also uh, maintains your lean mass, which is really important for your overall health and your performance. I like, uh, I'm, I'm right on the same page as far as kind of having, setting that protein goal and kind of just sticking with it and manipulating the other macronutrients, carbs and fat around that. And um, I agree with you in terms of saying if someone has a lot of body fat, maybe instead of saying a gram per pound, maybe saying a gram, a gram per pound of like desired kind of, of like yeah. optimal body weight or something like that. And for a female, um, especially, and this is, you know, uh, obviously one of those, it depends things, but for a female is uh, who may not be consuming very much protein or even a male is starting, you know, maybe at like 0.75 or 0.8 grams per pound yeah. as something like that. So spot on there. Um, so with respect to kind of the importance of, of resistance training, we've talked about us. So I've talked about kind of why resistance training is important on this show, 
but from a scientific standpoint, could you, and, and, and same with aerobics is we're, we're starting to see the importance of doing cardiovascular training of, of aerobic training, but from a scientific uh, standpoint, from a cellular standpoint, from a, a blood sugar standpoint, why is those ty- why are those types of training important and what does it do to the receptors in the cells and how does it affect our body's ability to utilize um, nutrients and, and those types of things? Yeah, well, so if you think about it, we have uh, we have an easy way to store fat in the body. That's our fat cells, right? Uh, but actually, the easiest way for us to store glucose or the best way for us to store glucose is in our muscles. So you can think of your muscles as a big repository where you can dump a bunch of glucose. So all that carbohydrate you eat that gets turned into glucose in your blood can go and fill up your muscle tissue instead mm-hmm. of your fat tissue if you manage to direct it there. Yeah. The way we can siphon it off into our muscle tissue is through mostly resistance training. It'll still happen with aerobic and, and higher intensity cardio type stuff, but it's mostly the resistance training that helps our muscles soak up excess glucose out of the blood. So there's a, uh, a transporter called uh, GLUT4. So it stands for Glucose Transporter 4. And that sits inside the muscle cell. And what happens is when you have the tension from the the weight training on the muscles, it translocates from the middle of the cell, it comes up to the cell wall, and it opens up this channel that soaks up glucose from the blood. And that can happen without insulin. So that means that you improve your insulin sensitivity because you don't even need to use insulin in this case. Um, And it also means that our nutrient partitioning is a lot better. So we're actually directing nutrients to our muscles rather than other tissues like our fat cells. And that's one of the reasons why it's really important for your cardiovascular uh, and general metabolic health. Um, You know, aside from that, there's also a whole bunch of things that go on with inflammatory signaling. So you can actually uh, improve your immune function because of the, the type of inflammatory signaling that happens from training. Um, And then that also ties into things like mental health. So one of the um, important molecules involved there is called interleukin-6. And that's produced when we train. Uh, And that has an anti-inflammatory effect in the brain and it also can mediate some changes in the immune system. So let's say you're a little bit sick, you're a bit sniffly, nothing too crazy. Doing a training session can actually be beneficial provided you don't go too hard. So you might come in still... And you might do an easy session where you do maybe a half to two thirds of what you would normally do and just keep it on the lighter side. Don't go to failure. And you probably find an improvement, a slight improvement in your immune function that can help you get over that sickness a bit easier. So there's sort of this wide range of benefits on different parts of the body, different tissues that training in general can help with. Dude, beautiful. Yeah, that's perfect explanation. And exactly what I wanted people to what I want people to understand from a scientific perspective is, is yeah, it's important to have muscle mass. Um, it's important to have muscle mass for our body's ability to, you know, regulate blood sugar and improve metabolic output and burn more calories at rest, but also just the simple process of strength training in and of itself helps us utilize the nutrients that we're taking in more efficiently um, which is so incredibly important, especially when we're talking to, you know, Americans is, which is the vast majority of us are, are overweight, um, and sedentary. And so 
just starting to implement a little bit of resistance training and it doesn't have to be crazy CrossFit stuff, but just, and even if it's just like, uh, you know, machine based training, um, just implementing that stuff uh, and experiencing the resistance can really go a long way towards improving health and blood sugar and body composition and mental health and all of those types of things. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so Luke, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up in a minute here, but let's just dive into kind of supplementation for a second. Um, what are you kind of, you know, what are your thoughts on supplementation? What are your favorite, uh, you know, what are your favorite supplements or the kind of the common things that you're using with your clients, maybe in and around their workouts. And then as a means to, uh, help improve kind of just, just, uh, health and being generally. Yeah, I, I, um, I used to be much more heavy handed with supplements. Uh, right now I kind of, I think like if you can justify one or two supplements, then it's kind of like, ah, then I can justify this and then I can justify that. And then all of a sudden you've got someone spending a hundred bucks a week on supplements Sure. Uh, that may or may not really be all that helpful. But with that said, I do find that there are some basic ones that probably most people can benefit from. Um, Creatine is probably something that everybody can benefit from. And if you look into the research, it has a benefit on just about anything you can imagine. So I would say that that is something that everybody can take. Even your grandma will probably you know, benefit from that. Um, it's really cheap. It's really safe. Most well-researched supplement out there. So that's something you can try out and see if you enjoy. And you don't need a lot. Like three grams a day is totally cool. Just take that every day. You can mix it into whatever you want. Um, outside of that, there's good research showing that people who train hard will deplete minerals more quickly, things like zinc and magnesium, for example. And I tend to find that you'll feel, especially for men, will feel a lot better having adequate zinc. Um, and that's also a cheap and, and uh, efficacious supplement that you can try out. Um, you know, you just keep it on a lower dose uh, uh, every day and you should be totally cool. Like something like 10 to 20 milligrams, which is probably going to be one capsule for most supplement brands. Of, of zinc, zinc of yeah, zinc. Uh, are we talking about like zinc picolinate or which? Yeah, any chelated version. So for those who don't know what a chelate is, it's when they take the uh, the mineral and they bind it to an amino acid, and they always end in the letters A T E. So you might get zinc glycinate or picolinate or taurate or whatever. Right. Um, and what that means is that when you ingest it, it can use that that amino acid's transport mechanisms in your guts, so you get better bioavailability compared to an oxide version. Beautiful. So any mineral, I would recommend having a chelated version. Whatever that chelate is, doesn't matter too much. Um, you know, uh, so that goes for magnesium as well. And if you're training a lot, you actually lose quite a lot of magnesium, um, which is a really important mineral because it governs a lot of different enzymatic processes in the body. So I would recommend definitely uh, getting some magnesium um, and funnily enough, with all of the uh, recovery type talk we had and the nervous system type talk we had today, uh, magnesium is really important for mediating that type of stuff. So you may find if you're magnesium deficient, you'll uh, become less stressed and make it a bit easier to sleep and that sort of stuff if you've got some magnesium floating around. Uh, so I would probably take 200 to 400 milligrams a day of that, depending on how hard you're training and you know whether you get much magnesium from your diet which is uh what the research has been shown to to work pretty well um a bit of a weird one that i've kind of been going on about a little bit recently is glycine uh, mm -hmm. 
So there's a, a guy who works for examine.com called Alex Leaf, and he's sort of written a bit more about this recently because there's not a lot of research, but if you do look at the research we have, it seems that uh, glycine might be a really important part of maximizing our collagen synthesis and uh, helping our utilization of uh, methyl donors within the body. And methyl donors basically just help facilitate a bunch of uh, uh, reactions, essentially. So they're quite important to have around. But basically the idea is that um, traditionally we probably would have eaten a lot more uh, collagen in our diet. So the skin, the connective tissues, um, that type of stuff from animals that we, that we killed and ate. Um, but these days we obviously tend to eat almost exclusively muscle meats, which mm -hmm. tend to have a really high ratio of methionine, uh, which is another amino acid to glycine in the body. Um, and going back to that triage theory, the idea is basically that the glycine is uh, fairly, you know, because there's not a lot of it around, we can only synthesize a certain amount of it and it's used for only the most essential uh, needs of the body. But there's this sort of deficit of stuff that's going towards synthesizing new collagen, synthesizing glutathione, which is like our body's strongest uh, endogenous antioxidant and things of that nature. So... Uh, the idea is that because we have a methionine-rich diet and not so much glycine, we need to push that ratio a little bit more to having more glycine. And so supplementing with some glycine could be quite helpful. Um, that's something I'm still playing around with. I've actually ordered a whole bunch, and I'm going to sort of try it out, but I don't necessarily expect to see a lot of uh, results. Anecdotally speaking, probably um, only in the medium term or would I expect to really notice much of a difference, if anything. But it's, it's quite an interesting theory that... Um, potentially some of the effects of aging where we start to lose mobility and skin elasticity may be because over the lifetime we haven't been able to synthesize as much collagen as a result of not having enough glycine in diets. Yeah, that's really interesting. I played around with glycine. A note, a word to the wise, don't use too much at once um, or else <laughs> yeah. it, it can be a good way to relieve constipation. We'll just, we'll just put it that way. Yeah, I did that with, um, with uh, sodium bicarbonate. Oh, well, that'll, yep. Yeah, that was uncomfortable. That was like uh, Mount Edna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was working out with a buddy and we were just having some coffee and he was using glycine to, he was just using glycine like to sweeten his coffee because glycine has kind of a sweet, you know, yeah. sweet taste and to actually, it. That's, that's pretty cool. I reckon in the future people might start, you know, if we clue on to how valuable glycine may mm -hmm. be, it may be that you start seeing health drinks that are sweetened with glycine instead of, uh, you know, other sweeteners like stevia or sugar. I think that's, that's spot on. The only concern I have is the individual tolerance to it. Absolutely. And so that can create obviously problems pr pretty significantly. But so he, he had been using it for a while and it's one of those that you can kind of build up a tolerance to. And uh, I think he put something like 10 grams in my coffee or something. And oh boy. That was a rough one. Yeah. <laughs> that was a rough workout. Unfortunately, I don't think yeah. we were squats that day, but uh, yeah, good. <laughs> that could have been bad. Um, Luke, man, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, man, I've had a lot of fun. Um, so my company in, uh, in Sydney is called Lucid Health Coaching. Um, and so that's my wife and I, and we work out of a gym called Lift Performance Center, which is in the inner Sydney, inner city in Sydney. Uh, but I also 
uh, do a lot of distance coaching, particularly with other personal trainers. So um, I have a, a personal trainer group called Personal Trainer Upskill and Education on Facebook. So if you are a coach and you want to learn some stuff, there's a ton of really smart people in there. Um, so feel free to look that up. And say, up. say that one more time. The group. Uh, personal trainer, upskill and education. Upskill and education? That's Great. right. Yeah, so you guys make sure to check out Luke. Uh, make sure to check out if you're a trainer, you're interested in learning more. Obviously, he's a, a wealth of, of knowledge and I feel like, uh, Luke, you've got a really great balance between kind of the, the experience and, and, and art of coaching as well as the science, um, and, and which is really, really important to be able to understand the you know, anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry of all of, these, all of these things and how to utilize them and when to utilize them and, and all of that and such. And so if you're a trainer and you're looking for continuing education, then you know, make sure to reach out to Luke. Um, and, uh, and then of course, if you're in the Sydney area, listen to this and, and you're looking for some personal training, then you know where to find him. Uh, anything else, buddy? Nah, man, I just want to thank you for your time in, in, uh, doing this podcast, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been, it's really been a pleasure enlightening for me for sure. And uh, hopefully for the audience, I just, you know, nothing better for me than connecting with other like-minded um, and smart professionals in the field really doing great things and, and changing the world. And, you know, our whole goal is to help make smart nutrition simple. It just, you know, it just doesn't have to be complex as complex as the industry is making it out to be. And it's very frustrating for me. And that's part of the impetus for why I wanted to start this podcast, why I want to connect with other, you know, coaches doing good things in the industry so that people aren't just hearing it from me. They, you know, get the understanding that like, it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be radical and restrictive, um, you know, dieting. And so I appreciate you sharing uh, everything that you have and I'll look forward to connecting. We'll have to get on another call and talk more in depth about uh, supplementation and some of these types of things. So, Yeah, man, I would love to. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. You have a great day, great Thursday over there in the uh, in Australia, and uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome, man. Thanks, Tom. There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Luke Tolak. Make sure to check out the show notes over at bslnutrition.com slash episode 30, and make sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes so that we can help more people make smart nutrition simple. This episode was brought to you by BSL Nutrition and the Complete Essentials All-in-One Training Drink. If you've been looking for a comprehensive workout supplement that can help support great energy both in and around your workouts as well as reduce muscle soreness without all the caffeine and artificial sweeteners, then head over to bslnutritionshop.com and type in podcast at checkout for 15% off your first purchase of either grape and or the lemon lime complete essentials.